0: Hello, and welcome to our first episode of season two of the Fast Fill. Fast Fill is a podcast series sponsored by Natural Gas Vehicles for America, the national organization dedicated to the development of a growing, profitable, and sustainable marketplace for vehicles powered by natural gas and biomethane, and for promoting the use of more natural gas and transportation in general. I'm your host, Dan Gage, president of NGV America, and joining me today is one of my favorite people in the industry. NGV America's Director of State Government Affairs, Sherry Merrill. Welcome, Sherry.
1: Thanks, Dan. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, lots of happenings in the states this year, Sherry, Um, especially uh, in interest in RNG, renewable natural gas. So before we get into some of the state stuff, let's remind our listeners what RNG actually is.
1: Sure, Dan. RNG is simply natural gas collected from local landfills, wastewater treatment plants, commercial food waste facilities, and agricultural digesters. All organic matter produces methane when decomposing. This methane, rather than essentially escaping into the atmosphere, is collected, scrubbed, and put into the pipeline system. RNG can also be referred to as biomethane or biogas or green gas.
0: So, so this is gas that really is naturally occurring. It would otherwise just escape into the atmosphere unless it's captured. Why, why is RNG matter so much, and why is it so important that there's a transportation solution with it?
1: Exactly, the RNG that is escaping into the air um, is really the methane is creating uh, problems in our atmosphere, and and we need to move forward with the renewable natural gas capture so that it can be put uh, into the transportation sector. The beauty of natural Mm -hmm. gas engine is that it can be put into that engine. Once it's gone into the pipeline, it's no different than using regular natural gas. It's just a much cleaner source. And today's natural gas engines are 90% cleaner than the cleanest diesel, 90% cleaner than the current federal clean air standard. That impacts smog precursor emissions like NOx and particulate matter. These things relate to giving us cleaner air. But
0: mm-hmm. when you
1: fuel that same vehicle with renewable natural gas, you also achieve significant greenhouse gas emission benefits. RNG, when used to fuel a transit or school bus, delivery truck or tractor trailer, or refuse vehicle, can achieve a net zero carbon or even a net carbon negative result.
0: Yeah and I, and I, we hear that um you know a lot in the industry when we talk about that but why is there a difference in carbon intensity explain to our listeners how that uh how that works
1: Sure um so carbon intensity is really just how much carbon um is put into the air through the collection of and production of fuels and if you take mm-hmm. a look at uh various fuels uh, and California has a nice chart that lays it all out um, including propane and uh, gasoline, hydrogen, ethanol, diesel, uh, CNG, LNG. And then you take the renewable versions of those, and you end up with how much carbon could actually be reduced by using a fuel, and that's the carbon intensity. So if you take a look mm-hmm. at um, renewable natural gas feedstocks, we have landfill and we have wastewater. And those get us close to zero carbon intensity, but when we get to food waste, um, we're there because we're taking so much more methane out of the air. Agricultural waste is is amazing as far as its carbon uh, negative carbon intensity, and if we take a look at some of the fuels, all of the fuels are above zero, with the exception of four fuels. So. Uh, at a minus 40 carbon intensity, we have hydrogen. We have um, renewable LNG at minus 330. And that would be using renewable natural gas dairy, then electricity at a minus 370. But the amazing result is that the carbon intensity on um, renewable CNG is actually about minus 480 and by far the most um, effective in reducing carbon. So it's those kinds of things that we're looking at that are really causing us to stop, take a look at measurements. Should measurements be tailpipe only, um, which is what our zero emission vehicle brings us to, or should they really be life cycle and really be what's affecting um, our climate, what's affecting our air, and ozone, et cetera? And it, it seems to me that it ought to be the latter, where you're really looking at life cycle. And as long as humans, animals, and organic matter inhabit the earth, there will be a continuous source of RNG to capture. That's kind of the beauty of what we're dealing with here. Just as a f- fact, um, the data that... Uh, we're looking at in California, in uh, Q3 of 2020, the weighted carbon intensity value of the RNG that California is using as a vehicle fuel um, is carbon negative, And it's, I'll throw out a number here, but mine is 17.95 grams of carbon dioxide equivalent per megajoule. So just
0: so that's sort of the blend, the mix of all exactly. of those different feedstocks in one. So it's negative, which which I, I has a question about that when you mentioned renewable electricity. So renewable electricity, uh, in order to have that great low negative carbon intensity number, it must have been um, not just solar and wind, but there must have also been RNG produced electric generation in that as well to get that number, don't you think? Yes,
1: it, it includes yeah. um, just a pure renewable source to get to the minus 370. Mm-hmm. Um, it wouldn't get there yeah. otherwise. So,
0: So we put together this year, earlier this year, a report entitled Fuel a Greener Future to sort of highlight the value proposition of RNG-fueled heavy-duty vehicles. I would encourage our our listeners to go to our website and down at the bottom footer uh, under the resource center they can access that. But you're using that piece in a, a lot of your state activities. What's the what's the reception that you get when you explain the differences here to legislators about um, this available now RNG, which is. In essentially a drop in fuel, right? In in terms of the vehicles that have already that are already on the road and the infrastructure that's already in place, what's the reception that you get, and uh, what type of RNG bills are we seeing in the state legislatures this year?
1: Well, when you are able to take the time and uh, present to legislators and help them understand renewable natural gas um, and its benefit and its widespread ability to be produced. Um, we're seeing, we're seeing people get excited because as we've gone through the whole zero emission vehicle and the electric vehicle um, push, and we're still in the middle of that, we're seeing that the costs are starting to come to bear. The, the realities mm-hmm. of some of the technology are coming to bear. So legislators are looking. They're looking to see what else is out there. They're looking to see if... Um, there are fuels that make some sense. So we're seeing many states with RNG bills. We had, uh, I think, 25 states already this year that have put forward some sort of renewable natural gas bill, and they kind of fall into categories of definitional. So maybe there are incentives for, for vehicles already, and so they're including RNG in that incentive, Maybe they're just defining Mm -hmm. a renewable as adding RNG to the list of renewables. But then we also have the bills that direct utilities to look at using renewable natural gas and blending it in their pipelines, because that will make their gas cleaner than it is uh, from Mm -hmm. traditional sources. The thing that utilities are looking at is this is an opportunity economically for them to produce the fuel that they provide. And- Somewhat become, you know, not as reliant on the natural gas industry to provide their product. So um, that's on the utility side. Then we see landfills and some of the refuse applications where cities and locales um, run these themselves and they see an economic opportunity. Uh, Longmont, Colorado, takes their wastewater and turns it into sea and run their refuse trucks. So while they're maybe not,
0: and and, and when you're talking about a circular economy, it doesn't get more circular and granular right at the ground level exactly. than that. And
1: they're not trying to sell it as they get excess; then they could up, put up a station and and sell it. But um, right mm-hmm. now, it, it's lowering mm-hmm. their costs tremendously. So we're seeing a lot of different things um, in renewable gas. Uh, natural gas bills. The other thing we're seeing um, is uh, clean fuel standards as well. So these have been around in what has been called a low carbon fuel standard. California has a program already. Oregon has a program already. Uh, The new verbiage clean fuel standard is a little sounds broader. It's really still the same thing. But using the carbon intensity values to determine um, what fuels should pay for the fact that they're carbon intensive or what fuels can actually get credits for reducing carbon and then move um, into the realm of those who have to buy these credits. So it creates an economic um, and business proposition around the fuels and incentivizes those that are cleaner to be used. And
0: so it doesn't, they don't, they don't in essence ban the use of traditional gasoline or diesel. They just discourage the use by adding sort of, if you're, if you, if you utilize those fuels, there, there's a, there's a credit that, that you have to, a, a, a somehow accumulate, Correct. right? from a from a much Correct. cleaner source. So it's not a ban. It's just encouraging and incentivizing the use, the long term use of of lower carbon exactly.
1: Fuels. and and you okay. kind of bring up one of the first things that I see when we're um, talking to states about a clean fuel standard, and that's, well, my gasoline and diesel prices will go through the roof. And it turns mm-hmm. out, according to California, uh, and they've had this program for a few years now, and it's really maybe five cents a gallon that prices have gone up. It's not mm-hmm. um, astronomical and and not expected to real grower than that. so um that argument for what you're getting and creating a a field in which all the fuels can play, uh, I feel is better than the bands, as you said, you know that
0: well it it sounds like it provides fleets flexibility to choose the fuels that work best for their needs, whether it's performance or range or climate or, you know, weather, uh, all exactly. of the above.
1: Exactly. And we're looking mm-hmm. at uh, states. Washington has a bill. They've had a bill for the last couple of years that hasn't passed. They have one now that looks pretty good for a clean fuel standard. New Mexico mm-hmm. had one. It did not make it through. Um The session ran out of time, but they're in special session now. It may come up. New York has a bill that's still in play, and Minnesota just introduced a bill. So we've got efforts across the states. Something else that's occurring is we're seeing regional groups. So in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic, we have the uh, Transportation and Climate Initiative program that has um, Mm -hmm. quite a few states involved there four states that are actively looking to put in um, a program that would incentivize uh, vehicles in this this manner. Then we've got the Midwest Clean Fuel Policy Initiative. Same thing, about 12, 14 states that are involved in that, and Minnesota's one of them. They're the first uh, to actually go for a clean fuel standard. So I'm trying to leverage the types of program to come up with templates is really how these regional things are acting. And I think it's it's helpful, but each state will figure out their own um, way to implement this and their own way to use the monies. Uh, but it's basically meant to be used in the transportation sector.
0: Are some of the um, conversations that you see and the opposition that's developed, does it seem to be based on political party? Does it seem to be based on lo- uh, locale? Is it a rural herb versus urban? Um, w- what's the, sort of the dynamic been uh, in different parts of the country?
1: Well, if, if we look at um, the coasts, whether it's East Coast or the West mm-hmm. Coast, we have more cities. We have uh, a greater awareness um, and belief in uh, climate issues and, and uh, the need to do something about them, uh, they have taken mm-hmm. a path of zero emission vehicle. And the whole carbon intensity pulls that back and says, no, let's look at life cycle. So um, we're mm-hmm. seeing pushes on those sides towards car- clean fuel standards on the coast. But then when you get into uh, the center of the country, and I'm being very general here. You start to see a little pushback in the sense of um, just the cost of the fuel, the cost of the infrastructure that isn't there, the cost of the technology. Um, if I'm living in rural New Mexico, am I going to have access to fuels that you know don't require some sort of um, payment? And, you know, am I Mm -hmm. stuck with gasoline and diesel because we don't have infrastructure? We don't have shops, dealerships selling EVs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So we do see that. That did come up there. I think those are good questions and begs the question of the whole rollout of infrastructure. Uh, But it also comes back around to where renewable natural gas with infrastructure that exists and vehicles that exist, just becomes a, a wonderful solution to that.
0: Well, we we seem to the conversation. I think that that you you, you just shared about some of um, the the debates in some of the states. Um, it seems to be coming back uh, a little bit m- m- louder uh, about affordability and not just affordability for. Big fleets to transition, or municipalities to to transition, because I think the assumption is, well, we're just going to pass all of this uh, deficit spending at the federal level and make it happen. But there really are daily, day to day affordability issues with this transition. When it comes to, for instance, just and in the electric side, um, let's use transit as an uh, as a as an example. Um, it requires a huge investment to transition over from federal taxpayers because they tend to purchase uh, and provide this support for the transit agencies to purchase these vehicles, right? 80, 85% of the vehicle cost. But then you also have the rate rate payers, uh, folks who who, who are hooked into the electric grid and pay the utility. Um, These big, huge transmission capacity investments uh, will be rate-based. So you'll see that through a higher utility bill. And then if you are a regular transit rider, um, the transit agency is also going to have to pay uh, its share, and that will be probably through the fare box. So um, affordability in this transition to cleaner technology, regardless of what it is, has to be um, a a big consideration for a lot of these legislators, especially if they're representing uh, poorer communities or uh, more middle-class communities, um, and certainly communities of, of of uh, of color or in frontline communities, environmental justice concerns um, that they're going to see these types of investments and, and opportunities in their community, and not just have to be paying for it, for for those investments to go elsewhere.
1: Exactly. I mean, the cost of of converting to what seems to be the chosen fuel, uh, electricity, is is astronomical and um, not achievable, especially in the timeframes. Uh, we're looking at California with um, their state implementation plan goals. They know they won't meet them right now. And it's purely Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because they did Mm -hmm. not focus on what could solve problems today. Mm -hmm.
0: So today, well, today when we tape this, right, the Biden administration um, released its bold, very bold infrastructure plan. I'm not sure if this is a question, but more of a comment. And I'm curious to have your reaction too. but, uh, so President Biden traveled to Pittsburgh, um, announced a very, very bold and ambitious uh, investment. Um, it relies very heavily on low-carbon transportation investments, the development of green jobs, which I think we all can agree with the the need for that, right? Uh, what extent and how it's paid for is the big question mark. But I also read today in a Washington Post story that it takes seven years to build a lithium mine and and at least two and a half years to build a battery plant. And then I'm also reminded of a television interview I saw back in February, I believe it was on 60 Minutes, but it had former US Senator and Secretary of State John Kerry, who's currently President Biden's US Special Envoy for Climate. He definitively told the reporter that We have nine years left to avert the worst consequences of the climate crisis. Nine years. So how do these realities mesh up, right? This huge, bold investment that we're hearing from President Biden today, which we know will take years to implement um, and cost trillions of dollars. And then we also hear from the climate, so-called climate experts that are saying we don't have any time to waste. So, you know, is that reality is it trickling into state legislatures, at least? Sometimes we certainly don't hear hear enough people in Washington asking those questions.
1: Well, you're entirely right. Um, and it's, it's a slow process to get some of the details, the reality out to the public. Um, it's been very hard to get some of the data that we know from fleets and what is happening. Um, Available, but we're seeing it. It is starting to come out. Even the state legislature in California did an audit of the California Air Resources Board um, grant programs for vehicles, and basically said, "You're not even measuring your emissions reductions, much less achieving the goals that you state." So, with that kind of play, I think we're we're starting to. Um, Peel back the curtains and take a look at what's really happening, and then you have with COVID nineteen, budgets were really stretched and tightened, and so people are looking. Mm-hmm. Even with relief money, that that money's here today, gone tomorrow. How do you create the trillions of dollars? Um, I don't know how President Biden's going to create the trillions of dollars that this will take to do. And so I do think that the states are seeing the the reality of EVs where, you know, we know of uh, fleets that are having trouble. I was told the other day that, you know, Indianapolis has turned their fleets, their electric transit buses back in. It, they're just not working. I know that Albuquerque did that. Um, and it, it isn't mm-hmm. about EVs not working it's about what is working today and the fact that we do have natural gas vehicles and infrastructure that can use renewable natural gas and be by far the best solution we have cost that's reduced we have performance that's there and we have options across the the whole scale of vehicles and we have infrastructure so With groups knowing they're going to miss goals, they're starting to say, okay, what do we do? And are we setting a goal that it was really a a climate-based or emissions reduction-based goal? Or are we setting a technology goal? And technology is probably not the right Mm -hmm. goal. And uh, the reality is is we're starting to hear about it. And that's good news because I think it'll come to some better conclusions
0: yeah and we as we as we look to to uh, conclude our episode here, let's give a couple shout outs to two states who are doing uh, some really cool things, innovative things. One is Utah, and we had an incentive program that was passed by both houses in the legislature and signed into law by the governor. and then the second is a really sort of innovative incentive program and expansion of existing incentives in Texas to to talk to uh to address the the secondary market to, let's just to share a little bit about those two programs if you would with our sure our listeners.
1: so Utah has always been a good um, I'll call it an all of the above state where they've provided grant programs and incentives mm-hmm. for uh, vehicles based on reducing emissions but did not exclude Fuels and um, incentivized the right behaviors, right emissions reductions. And um, that bill expired a couple of years ago. And it was right when COVID was hitting, and the governor vetoed the bill. It passed in this, the uh, Senate and, let, and House, but um, he vetoed it because mm-hmm. of budget issues. So two years later, it's right. come back again. It's a class seven, class eight truck, uh, heavy duty type of a bill and incentive and should be very helpful to putting more vehicles on the, on the road.
0: Yeah. And the sooner you act, the greater the incentive over the next right. multiple years. Right. I thought that was a right. really cool aspect of it. So to try and, to try and get fleets to, to make right. those decisions today. Texas, yeah. and what about Texas is
1: a wonderful start at, taking the used vehicle market, the pre-owned market. So we have fleets like uh, UPS and Frito-Lay and Waste Management and a lot of these big fleets that turn their trucks over. Um, And frankly, in your your 18-wheeler type uh, Class 8, you have to turn them over because the drivers want the newest and greatest new thing. So they're able to turn them over. And if we are able to get grants that help smaller fleets who buy used trucks buy natural gas uh, trucks. Then we have created a market for the the big freight uh, haulers and and other fleets to uh, sell their used vehicles into. And we have an opportunity for the smaller fleets to actually start using cleaner vehicles. And it's just a great bill. It's moving forward. We're seeing good progress, and um, I'm hoping that as this passes in Texas that we're able to replicate that across the country in many states.
0: Yeah, I think that's especially important when we think about the number of trucks on the road. They're not all these big, giant, national corporate fleets. They are mom-and-pops or one or two or three family-owned businesses that sometimes don't have access to all that capital, so they're looking for the secondary or tertiary market. And we think about, you know, how old trucks on the road, you just drive on any highway today in a, in a commute and you can see white box trucks that are 20, 15, 20, 25 years old. Um, You know, those are the types of trucks we need to target. So I, I think that's a really innovative um, uh, program in Texas. Let's hope it gets passed. It would certainly seem to be a great national model. Definitely. Yeah. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for this quick uh, state update. We really appreciate it. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. For more information on uh, NGVA's Fuel a Greener Future report that we discussed a little bit, visit our website at ngvamerica.org. It's located in our online resource center. You can also sign up for NGV America's weekly newsletter online. And always share comments with us on today's podcast via email at info at ngvamerica.org. Be sure to follow us on all your favorite social media platforms as well. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. On behalf of Sherry Merrill and the entire NGV America team, I'm Dan Gage. Thanks again for joining us. Sherry, thank you thank for you, Dan. being on. Yep. And you just experienced the fast fill. Until next time.